Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action, we'll be talking to three dedicated workers for peace and justice who've been led to take part in the Brave Stand at Standing Rock in North Dakota. Though we've occasionally mentioned the events at Standing Rock on this program, it's certainly not been the attention that this transformative event deserves. So we're going to try to understand a bit of what's going on there and why it's going on by talking to three different men who've been at Standing Rock. They are not the backbone behind the witness. They're not Native Americans, but they found a deep resonance with this Native-led and directed protection of the land and water. We'll start with a brief visit with one of our perennial favorites for Spirit in Action, Eau Claire's own Myron Buckles. As you can learn from my previous visits with Myron, his wake-up call to activism was the aftermath of the attack on the Twin Towers, although he'd been deeply concerned about social justice and peace before. His daughter enlisted in the military, and Myron and Janet poured constant love and support in her direction, especially during her terms of duty in Iraq. With his early retirement from decades of teaching high school history, Myron has dedicated a large slice of his time to peace and social justice work. He's made two trips out to Standing Rock, and after the second, Myron shared the following op-ed column with our local newspaper. Perhaps that would be a good place to start our look to Standing Rock with Myron Buckles and his op-ed. Early Friday morning on December 2nd, I awoke from a cold sleep at Standing Rock in North Dakota, and I decided I need a cup of hot tea from the medicine tent, which was not too far away. The elders and others had already gathered at the sacred fire and were beginning their daily processional to the Cannonball River for the morning water ceremony, something they have done every day since the beginning of the protection, regardless of the weather. As I stood there with my cup of hot tea warding off the cold, one of the women leading the ceremony gave me a drink of water, and another poured some in my hands, saying, quote, water is life, unquote. I joined the processional and walked to the riverbank where the men lined the steep embankment to offer support to those going to the edge of the river in the cold, slippery conditions. The ceremony took an hour while the elders, both women and men, offered prayers for the protection of Mother Earth and the water that gives life to all. I have attended many religious ceremonies, and this one was as solemn as any, a couple of times moving me to tears. The helicopter circling overhead did not distract the occasion, although I was certain that was the intention. As the prayers and songs ended, we helped the elders and others back up the embankment. I found myself getting angry. I have heard many arguments against the protectors, and after my second trip to Standing Rock, I can say that the arguments are either half-truths or outright lies. I described the anger I felt to my four Eau Claire area traveling companions, and they all counseled me to let it go, because everything we have heard or seen from the protectors was about being peaceful. From when we pulled into camp and were asked if we had any weapons or drugs, to the sacred fire ceremony reminding us that we all bleed red. 
Why do the wealthy and the powerful find it so easy to vilify non-violent protectors who are simply standing in the way of the most wealthy, ruthless, and greedy industry in the history? The same corporations, media and otherwise, who implied that invading Iraq would be a cakewalk are the same ones telling us that we need this pipeline and spills are just the cost of doing business. They are heavily armed and violent, yet complain about the violence of unarmed people. These are the same people who hired private security and turned dogs loose to bite people and then charge a journalist with rioting for taking pictures of the atrocity. The degradation of the air and water in West North Dakota already have some scientists worrying that the whole region could become the largest Superfund site in the U.S. Pipelines break regularly. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration records a major spill every month. A recent example is what happened at the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. There, Enbridge Company engineers, when noticing a drop in the pipeline pressure, turned the pressure up without investigating, making the oil spill in that beautiful fishery even worse. The river may never recover. The fear of a spill in the Missouri River is real, and the effects would be disastrous. This is proven by the fact that the people, mostly white, in Bismarck and Mandan, insisted the pipeline be moved downstream from them. I remember when the Alaska pipeline was going to save us from foreign oil. It is great irony that the DAPL may provide oil for export. Of course, there is another way, and that would call for investing the $3.8 billion the pipeline is rumored to cost into clean, green energy. We are already moving towards a day when energy use does not mean polluted air and water, but it will take massive public pressure, like what is happening at Standing Rock and other places across the country and the world, to force the issue. The amount of money that the fossil fuel industry uses to influence government is virtually unlimited, and politicians respond to money like a dog to a bone. There is no better place to look for justification of clean energy than the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Where is the justice at Standing Rock? Where is the tranquility in an oil spill? Where is the common defense in Mideast wars over oil? Where is the general welfare and the lung diseases associated with fossil fuels and the high cost of heating fuel? Where is the liberty when fossil fuels own many in Congress? What kind of earth are we leaving to our children and grandchildren for our posterity? The fossil fuel industry must believe the preamble was written for them because they certainly don't act like it was written for the rest of us. The water protectors hold what is near and dear to all of humanity, and that starts with clean air and water. The most prevalent phrase at Standing Rock is, water is life. Don't rely on our politicians to do as best for us, as they largely are owned by the fossil fuel industry. Keep pushing them to do the right thing and tell the truth. Set your Google News alerts to oil spill and see how often you get a hit. Keep the conversation going. After all, it is we the people. For those who argue about the short-term profits of clean energy, remember the words of the Greek proverb. A society grows great when old people plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. That was Myron Buckle sharing a piece he wrote for our local daily here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Thankfully, since Myron is readily available, we can have him join us to share a bit more on his take about Standing Rock protection efforts in North Dakota. So while we're at it, we'll also take the opportunity to do another installment of our look at history and its intersections with peace and justice issues of today, drawing on Myron's decades of teaching high school history, not just memorizing dates and names, but attempting to enable all of us, including students, to learn from history and to guide us to a better day. I'm glad to have you back, Myron, for another installment of History and Our Best Future. 
And since you were out to Standing Rock, twice actually, you had a chance on the ground to see how things were going there. And you certainly are inflamed with passions about the protectors. As you look back on the history of the interactions between the settlers, primarily those of European descent coming over to this continent, and the face-offs with those who are already here, all the various tribes now known generally as Native Americans, I'm wondering if you can comment on the treaties and treaty rights that were brokered as part of the relentless westward push of the colonists. In particular, I'm wondering if those treaties especially the clauses of the treaties which promise protection, control, and natural resources to the indigenous tribes, if those treaties were lived up to, or if there were some, yes, some no, or to what degree the invaders and their descendants have lived up to the terms of the treaties. Have you seen a time and place where those treaty rights have been respected and Native Americans have been able to control their land, or has it always been by the breaking of the treaties that you can recognize them? Well, I'm not going to admit to knowing every specific thing about every tribe in the country and the treaty rights and uh, mining rights, but we know what the big picture is. And the big picture is one of consistent loss and damage to the environment. I can think of maybe possibly one exception, and that would be with the Alaska pipeline, which was complained about by the fossil fuel industry because it had to be built to such incredible specifications for caribou migration and for some of the native rights on the north slope of Alaska. But generally speaking, again, I just know that there's been a chipping away, um, and I just looked up the Navajo and the mining, the uranium mining, and I know that they've had some success in getting some cleanup efforts started but the damage has been done. The uranium was mined, the people are sick, and the land is destroyed probably forever. And now it's just a matter of saying, well, oh, you know, we'll try and clean it up. It's what's so unique, I think, about the Standing Rock experience is that you have this bringing together of so many people from all across the country that are going to meet at this sacred site and stop this one pipeline. So it is really special. Is it because it's native rights that it's special, or is there something special about the environmental coalition that's coming around to support this? What what are the components of Standing Rock? In a event like this, it's always multiple things that come together. The initial gathering of people way back in April and the complete press ignorance of the whole thing going on for months. I don't believe ABC has even mentioned it once yet, is part of the whole story. And it grew, and it grew because of the indigenous people starting it, and then so many other people who are simply concerned about where we're going and that these pipelines are constant. There is an argument that says that we've got so many pipelines, what do you care if there's another one? Well, I think the easy answer to that is so many of our pipelines that we have are so old and our infrastructure, every time it's looked at, is given a C or below by our engineers. We need to think about fixing those old pipelines or getting them possibly out of the ground before we keep adding new ones and hold the new ones to an incredibly high standard so that we don't have the number of leaks that we consistently have. 
There are a number of environmental groups that have rallied around the natives out at Standing Rock, and all across the country the uproar has been tremendous and is putting a lot of pressure, especially on the banks who are funding it, that possibly we can get this stopped. I won't believe it until it actually happens. I'd like to say something about one of the arguments that I've heard, and that is the, quote, outsiders, unquote, that are coming to North Dakota to stir up trouble. Yes, when I was there, I worked with people from California, from uh, Pennsylvania, from Oklahoma. I met people from all over the country. And so you can say that we were outsiders. I am a native-born North Dakotan. But the outsiders that concern me the most are the police officers from something like seven different states who volunteered to go out to Standing Rock. One has to think that nobody gets ordered by their police captain to go to Standing Rock. These officers volunteered. That really concerns me because they are truly the outsiders. And the violence that happened during the protection has been so heavily one-sided from the police towards the peaceful protectors that's very bothersome. So, a brief visit with former history teacher Myron Buckholz and another installment of History and Our Best Future. Listen to my other interviews with Myron on northernspiritradio.org, including the History and Our Best Future series. Next up on Spirit in Action is Ash Curier. I read an essay in the Madison Friends newsletter about his visit with his family to Standing Rock. I've been very impressed by Ash and Sarah and their so thoughtfully chosen lifestyle. And so I tracked down Ash to talk about what calls a family, including a less than one-year-old daughter, out to the sub-zero plains of North Dakota. Ash Curie joins us by phone from Argyle, Wisconsin. Ash, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. Now, my understanding is that you were out to Standing Rock twice. The last time must have been over a month ago, a month and a half ago. Do you have plans to go back? You know, I was just talking with my family about it, and we were looking at trying to figure out if they're doing the cleanup right now and if they needed any help, you know, because we went out there for the protest and... It'd be good to go out there and help clean up if there's any work left to be done. And what do you mean by clean up? I, I'm afraid I'm a little bit out of step here. Well, you know, there's so many people who are out there. I think when I was out there right after Thanksgiving weekend, the first time, I think there was close to 10,000 people. And even though we try to leave as little of a footprint as possible, you know, there was a lot of gear that was left, and they had a, a couple big snows that trapped a lot of gear and, and trash and equipment underneath the snow. They definitely have an excess of stuff out there, at least when we were out there, and it would be good to make sure that we return that land as best to its original state. You know, We don't want to be the polluters, right? <laughs> and there's other people in charge of that already. <laughs> so the first time you were out there, you think there were about 10,000 people, and I think the second time you were out there was for the veterans protest? Yep. The first time I was out there was the weekend after Thanksgiving, and there was roughly 10,000 people out there. And that weekend, uh, I brought my family and some supplies and some meat that we had slaughtered here at the house. You know, and I think that it was really good to go there and witness and see what was going on so that, you know, we can bring that back to our community. The second weekend uh, was for the Veterans Weekend. We had a car full of veterans from Wisconsin traveling up there. You know, 
I I don't know if uh, the veterans made a big difference, but I think, like again, I said before, the biggest plus that comes out of this, I think, is witnessing the accounts and bringing those stories back to your own community. And the second time you went with a carload of veterans for this, and not all of the family, right? Now, I, I read an article, by the way, about this in the Madison Friends Meeting newsletter. They had something that your wife wrote up about your trip out there. And she said something about dropping some of the kids off, and you took... Uh, how was this divided up? Well, we have uh, three children, 11-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 1-year-old. We left the... When we went up with my family, it was just Sarah and my youngest daughter that went. We dropped our two children off at the grandparents' house so that we could, you know, not have all the children with us. You know, and one of those luxuries that we have with living close to family is childcare. you know. It just made us a little bit easier to get up there. You know, it, in North Dakota, it was still really cold that weekend. I think it was topped out in, in the daytimes at, at about 20, and it was getting close to zero at night. So not having all the kids made it a little bit easier for us to get over there. I would like to talk a little bit about your family and why you feel led to support. For one thing, as I've already alluded to, is you are a veteran, but your family also lives, most people would consider it voluntary poverty level, yet you're taking meat out there, you're taking wood out there, you're giving from what most people think is is lack. Could you talk a little bit about what motivates you to dig deep in your pockets for this? You know, I think that, like... (laughs) Digging deep in our pockets is, uh, we didn't really give up that much, I feel. You know, people say that we live in poverty, my family, which is true. You know, we live below, well below the poverty line. But that's, you know, it's it's the privilege of us in, in the society and in our ability to live off of, you know, the runoff from the great stream of the American consumerism. <laughs> our family is far from poor. We have computer and technology and vehicles. As an American standard, we're very poor, but, you know, if you go throughout the world, you'll see that we're far from it. And giving was, you know, donating meat and wood and tools and and supplies to the effort. You know, my service in Iraq really showed me the destruction of greed. And, you know, that's been a big motivation in my life, is to work against outward greed, because that's, it is the original and the worst of all the sins, and it's the the beginning of all destruction in society is valuing your own well-being over the well-being of other people. And so our government and these corporations have invested a lot of infrastructure and money into oil, and they missed the boat. They they didn't realize quick enough that oil is a thing of the past and it's becoming a thing of the past quickly every day. Wind power, solar power is now cheaper than, than oil. You know, it's a destruction of our... Our habitat, you know, they call us tree huggers, and I always laugh. I'm like, I'm not there to protect the trees. I'm there to protect myself, you know. This is my environment. This is the air that I am breathing. I like the trees. They're great, but it's really a selfish motivation to want to protect the environment. I don't see anything wrong with that. I just, I see it as a way to sustain our own existence into the future. So this continued investment into oil infrastructure is problematic, and I think that that's a lot of the veterans are seeing that, and that's why you had such a big turnout up at Standing Rock in November and early December. The second weekend you went out with the veterans, was that experience for you significantly different than the first time you were out there? It was. It was completely, I mean, emotionally it was different. 
you know, the first time when I was there with my family, you do have to take care of the elements and make sure everyone's warm all the time. You know, so I had a really a fatherly figure, even though a lot of things were provided for us there. There was tents and heating spaces and food, but, you know, I had an infant out there and my wife and there had been troubles with the, the police, uh, you know, the weekend before uh, with water cannons. And so, you know, that part really, I felt protective of them and worried about them. But they were very, you know, there's children everywhere there. So it, it helped me relax about bringing my family. And I think that, like, including the families in these movements is really important. You know, my family was against the Vietnam War, but without having that education growing up and without being part of their conversation, I didn't really understand that. And so when I turned 18 and needed money for college, I joined the military. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, everyone in my family couldn't believe that I did this. And my reasoning was like, well, we had never talked about peace in my family. It was always implied that my family really, my parents saw the importance of peace and not using uh, war to, to solve international disputes but we didn't discuss it. And so that's a discussion that I, I think that is important to have with your kids and your children and tomorrow's generation is to bring them to these events and to show them what is important is to be present. And what would you say for you personally? I mean, now, again, I know you through Quaker Connections, right? You're part of a Quaker meeting down there, and I think there's some of that, that you receive that also from your parents, although I don't know that you were specifically raised Quaker. But somehow you've got this pacifist strain, you've got anti-Vietnam in your family, and now you're a warrior in Iraq, theoretically. There's a lot of people who are at Standing Rock who identify as warriors. How does that connection feel to you is that warriorism that you're comfortable with or that you support i mean what how do you feel towards that element you know i believe that a warrior protects his people and a warrior doesn't always resort to violence and doesn't see that violence is always the necessity and there's a lot of actions and there's a lot of ways you can be to be a warrior that's not a violent warrior and so i feel like i fit into a very peaceful warrior position in life now and You know, I always make this analogy is that I don't think that many children know what they're going to do in life and have a great direction. So for me, growing up and going to the war was like running through the woods on a hot summer day where you're really thirsty and you're hungry and you have these branches that are hitting you in your face and you can get really frustrated. When I started doing peace work in 2008, 2007, it was like instead of running through the woods, I had found this river. And I slipped into the river, and the river was really nice and cool. And I was able to drink all the fresh water that I wanted. And I was able to eat fish when I wanted. And then I went down the river. And the river winds left sometimes, and it meanders to the right. And sometimes it forks, and I don't know which way I'm going to go, but I follow the river. And everywhere I go, there's water, and there's fish, and there's food, and there's cool, cool river to be nice and comfortable in. So I I don't know if that answers your question, but as being a warrior, I feel like now I've become a warrior. And before I was was more like a, a boy playing with guns in the woods. And folks, you should know Ash Curie, who I'm speaking with, 
amongst other things, he's a warrior, but he's also a, a full-time peace worker, but he's also an artist. And you can check out some of his work via ashcurier.com. Curier, and you mentioned this to me when we were talking earlier on the phone, Ash, that Curier, I knew how to pronounce it because I was raised Catholic. And Curier Eleison, I mean, I, I actually know it. So Curier is K-Y-R-I-E. So Ash, A-S-H, K-Y-R-I-E dot com. And you can find more info about him. And I'm going to have him back on Spirit in Action to talk more about his experience in Iraq very soon. But first, I wanted to get some more information about what's happening at Standing Rock or what has happened at Standing Rock. So when you go out to Standing Rock as part of a group and at the first time you're there, you and your family are three out of 10,000 people there. What do you do on the ground when you're there? What's the actual work that you're doing? What is your function there? Well, the way that Standing Rock happens and what has happened at Standing Rock is that we were in the Osheti Sakoan camp, and that's like a, a, a large camp of seven to 15,000 people, you know, somewhere in that range. But then there's many small camps inside that camp. I was staying with the Iraq veterans against the war camp or the veterans against war camp and there's veterans for peace camp and there's a ho-chunk native american camp inside the osheti camp and all the different camps come up with their ideas and their plans or an action that they want to do and then they put that to the tribal leaders and then the tribal leaders either okay it or they don't okay it and so that's like how the actions were happening your everyday life in the camp is early in the morning, you know, they start playing drums up at the main fire. So every day starts off with a prayer, a prayer for water. And, you know, they wake you up with, wake up, water protectors. You can't sleep and protect the water. <laughs> They're pretty funny <laughs> with their early morning announcements. <laughs> so they get everyone up and then they have a you know, prayer for water and they walk and they pray for water. And then there's breakfast. And the day-to-day of the camp runnings, which is, you know, you got to feed 10,000 people. So there's a lot of kitchens going on. There's a lot of cleanup. There's people that are installing stovepipes. There's people that are putting up tents or taking down tents. So there's the everyday living of being in the camp, but that's mixed with art tents, speakers, people speaking about the history of the tribe and the histories of different situations up in the Dakotas and they teach the people's history by Howard Zinn except for from their perspective you know and so there's groups standing around listening to these stories all throughout the camp. You mentioned you know the prayer stuff for water and I think this happens maybe throughout the day too. I Yeah. I, mean, I have not been yet but the water is life theme that is so close to the heart of Standing Rock how do you relate to that, and how do you relate to prayer in general? <laughs> it's not just the American Indians that are praying for water. You know, we, we know that water is the basis of all life. I think that they, when they're talking about water as life, I think they have spiritual connotations that are associated with it. We know that, you know, our own bodies are made up of the majority of water. You know, everything that we use has water in it. And what's interesting is to think about, like, the whole Earth as a single cell. You know, it's, it's one whole globe contained. And all the water that we use, you know, 
Like, I remember when Fukushima in Japan, the nuclear reactor blew up. And it was about a month later, I think, that the air that was over Fukushima when it blew up had gone swept through the entire United States. And so, you know, it's, we're all a part of this globe, right? And water is, is essential for every living thing on it. It's always amazing. You know, I give you the scientific reasons of this, but the science is very shallow, I'd say. Sometimes it doesn't see the full breadth. Like, you can test something in a small laboratory, but you don't have all the variables that are in nature. And they're always finding new ways about water, water structures that are different structures are better for you than others. So if water has been sit or filtered for a long time, you know, the, the water structure will actually change. And these are relatively recent understandings of water, which seems, you know, we, we think that we understand water, but we understand very, you know, it's like a very little, a limited amount. And how do you relate to the prayer part of it? Since you're a Quaker in the same vein I am, you're used to silent worship. How do you relate to the praying aloud? I'm a very spiritual person, and I wouldn't consider myself, like, theocratically religious, but having prayer, I think it's really a wonderful way of connecting with each other and connecting with the earth. I think that the prayers were very well-meaning and beautiful. And, you know, I think that, like, with water, uh, it's so essential, and it's a part of every single thing that you look around and you, there's water in it, that it, it is a very spiritual thing, and it needs every level of thought. When I think about prayer, I, and sometimes people don't understand the effect of prayer, and they kind of dismiss it. You know, I just always think of those water crystals where you'll have those monks, and they'll pray happy thoughts over the water crystals, and then you, I've seen these pictures of them, and the water crystals have these beautiful forms. And then they'll have the monks think hatred or evil thoughts over the water crystals. And then when the water, when the ice crystals form, they're jagged and, and very uneven. And how that can change something so simple as like, and basic as the structure of the, of the water. And, you know, you were saying, Ash, that while you were there, there's all these different camps within the you know, Sakono Shetty camp. You were talking about within it, there's the sub-camps, the Veterans for Peace or Iraq Veterans Against the War and so on. Are there also camps that are otherwise religiously? I mean, is there a Methodist camp and a Catholic camp and a, a Quaker camp for all I know? I didn't see a whole lot of religious set-up camps, but there were ministers, a large group of ministers that showed up and they were I think there were different faiths, interfaith group of ministers that showed up to support the water protectors. So, yeah, I didn't see separate camps for religious groups. And I think that that is one of the really sad things about what's going on, not just a recent with religion, is that they're not, uh, it's just an old thing with religion, is that churches aren't seeing the importance of peace action in, in their church. I really worry that, that our, you know, the separation between these churches and the act and life of Jesus I I don't see how they, they can support war and still be trying to follow Jesus. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's troubling. 
including the war on native groups. You know, let's avoid the city. Let's, who cares about the small minority group? They, they don't have any power. And it's great to see the power that has come together, both spiritually and physically in terms of numbers. And I do hope that there's ways that Sandra and I can actually help support you and your family going back, taking gifts with you. We need to assemble a whole lot of gifts there to make it enduring against a lot of opposition, which I think is going to be supported by the federal government now. So thank you for going out before, and thank you for your future intentions to help out there. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thanks for talking to you. And again, we've been speaking with Ash Curier. He and his wife, Sarah, live near Argyle, Wisconsin, small town about an hour west of Madison. You can find out more about Ash and his artwork on his site, ashcurier.com. There's a link at northernspiritradio.org. The topic today for Spirit in Action is Standing Rock, and my hope is that by the end of this program, we'll all have a better perception of what's going on there and what motivates someone to join the protectors. Before we go on to our next guest, I'll remind you that you're listening to the Spirit in Action program of northernspiritradio.org, a site where you'll be able to listen to the programs of our past 11 and a half years, find links to our guests and more info about them, and then there's a place to make our communication two-way by posting your comments when you visit. I really can't tell you just how much your contact means to me. Please do post a comment when you visit. And don't forget the donate button so you can support this full-time work in a way that businesses and governments simply do not. These programs are of, by, and for the people, which is why you should, first of all, support your local community radio station, like the places that carry this program. Let's prioritize our local voice and keep it vibrant by putting our hands and wallets to the work. Donate now to your local station. And right now, I want to get back to talking to the third of our Spirit in Action guests who've been out to the Dakota Plains to join the protectors at Standing Rock. I ran into a piece written by Kevin Basil, shared on Facebook, and the combination of his personal experience and the power with which he expresses himself in words and in deeds, and with his healing work for vets, led me to track him down. Thankfully, Kevin Basil is available by phone from upstate New York. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. I think your work is pretty much full-time. I would say for peace, is that a good characterization? I would say I work primarily with veterans. I am a member of several veterans organizations that specifically fight for peace, which may be a contradiction of terms, fighting for peace, but... You know, it, it is a fight, I think, these days. Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace. And then I also work for two veterans arts nonprofit organizations, Warrior Writers, where we use creative writing to help veterans and service members talk about their military experiences publicly. And then also Combat Paper New Jersey, where we show veterans and service members how to turn their uniforms into handmade paper that they can then use to make art with or make a book out of, or to use it in any way that they want to communicate their experiences in the military. Is that considered to be sacrilegious, to convert a uniform into paper? Well, we leave it open to interpretation. <laughs> I'm just wondering if the military thinks that way. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we work on military bases, so we have an ongoing series of workshops that happen at Walter Reed Military Medical Center. I'll be going down there again twice this year. We also work at Fort Belvoir in Virginia, 
and we've done workshops at Fort Dix as well. So they bring us in to the USOs usually. We also work at family centers on post. But the military seems to be trying everything it can right now to address the suicide epidemic. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that at more length. I'm going to have you back, and folks should know this, for one of my Song of the Soul interviews because you make music, and maybe we'll get a chance to listen to a little bit of your music before we go out here. But the reason I have you here is because I read an article you wrote, Why I Answered the Call for Veterans to Go to Standing Rock. I found that on otherwords.org. But in short, why did you go to Standing Rock? Why does it, did you join the veterans converging on Standing Rock? Well, as I mentioned in that op-ed, my motivations probably start when I was younger. They can be traced to when I was a young kid living in western Pennsylvania in coal country, as I call it. Strip mines were everywhere. They left these gaping holes in the ground. Shale piles were common. We would make bicycle ramps off of these shale piles and we would swim in abandoned strip mine water holes you know so it was it, it was just part of the landscape and as a kid I really didn't think anything of it it was just where I lived you know I didn't have an outside context to really understand what had happened and how my area had been used for fossil fuel extraction so yeah that was really let me step back a minute. There was a garbage dump that was going to go into one of these abandoned strip mines, and a lot of local community members started an ad hoc organization to fight the dump, and that was how I originally got involved in activism. However, you know, at that time I was 15 years old, and there wasn't really a lot that I could do. I actually, I was a Boy Scout, and for my ego project, I decided to put in a bridge on a, a rail trail that would be crossing almost directly beside where this dump was going to be in place. So I, I put my eco project on that trail. I refurbished a bridge, and I did that to deter, you know, the, the landfill, the people from coming in and putting the landfill in. So to some degree, by growing up wherever you did and feeling the earth despoiled, you could have some empathy for other people experiencing that. Is that a fair way to saying it? That's right, yeah. And then tying that to my military service, I always had that spark for activism, but I put that on pause when I was in the military from 2003 to 2008, and I would come out of the military very disenfranchised by what I had witnessed and what I had participated in in the Iraq war, so that I would get involved in, in activism with Iraq Veterans Against the War and later Veterans for Peace, and both of those organizations have a presence at Standing Rock Reservation in the resistance effort against the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, you know, I was, I was watching it very closely, and then the veterans stand for Standing Rock. GoFundMe was put up online, and that whole campaign essentially started as a Facebook page, a Facebook event. So it's really interesting to see how social media can be used to really create energy around activist movements these days. But GoFundMe campaign was actually what motivated me to go. I was watching as thousands of veterans were stepping up and saying, I'm going, I'm going to travel, you know, halfway across the country to go lend a hand in the resistance effort. And at first I was pretty apprehensive about it because Wesley Clark Jr. and Michael Wood Jr., two of the key organizers, I was originally apprehensive about going because some of the language that was used by Wesley Clark Jr. and Michael Wood Jr., it seemed a little 
reductive and well, Wesley Clark Jr. said, you know, most civilians are gutless worms and wouldn't stand up for a fight like what's happening at Standing Rock. So, you know, that kind of turned me off. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I really can't get behind that. But then I started to see as other people were coming in and getting involved, other veterans, that it went well beyond these two organizers, that this campaign was going to be really significant and that this was also my cause, you know, and I, that's when I decided to go with several friends. But when I got there, I joined the Iraq Veterans Against the War camp, and we waited for what was going to happen next. Ultimately, there was no nonviolent direct action because really the logistics on the ground weren't in place for that to happen. They weren't prepared to receive 4,000 veterans. It strained camp resources. There weren't enough buses to bring everyone in, so a lot of the veterans got stuck at a casino couple local towns on the reservation and you know we never got to do a mass show of force which is disappointing to me but on the flip side many of us got to participate in a forgiveness ceremony which was I think well received by the Lakota Dakota Sioux and the other nations who were there it was very heartwarming to me to go to my knees and apologize for centuries of military oppression that really made it all worth the trip for me. For those who haven't heard about that, why don't you mention specifically what you're talking about? So after the nonviolent direct action was called off, Wesley Clark Jr. planned this forgiveness ceremony where several hundred of us were to come to the casino and he would make this announcement, this public apology, where he apologized for, as I said, centuries of oppression and specifically citing his own unit, he was a, a cavalry officer, and he talked about how the cavalry was involved in war-making across the Great Plains, and he was very apologetic about the history of his own military tradition. And so he announced this, and there was a lot of people there, I'm assuming, besides vets, there's other folks there too, right? That's right. Many of the tribal leaders were there. Any of the civilian activists who were on site were also in attendance. There were a lot of reporters. Uh, yeah, it was a really moving experience. And you said that you went to your knees. What happened, actually? After Wesley Clark Jr. delivered his apology, we had planned to go to our knees, which is what we did at that time. And at that moment, you know, the room was silent, and we took a moment. And I'm sure many of the people who were there prayed there were many people crying, you know, people then got to their feet and gave one another hugs, and it was, they said, a very moving experience. So, Kevin, you're out in upstate New York at the moment, and you're working with all these different veterans groups, and I'm not assuming that all of these veterans groups you're working with are disapproving of war. Iraq veterans against the war, certainly, or veterans for peace, that's certainly there. But people who are, I don't know what, warrior writers or combat paper New Jersey, I don't know that these are necessarily in any way anti-war groups. So when you're working with these different groups, combat paper New Jersey, warrior writers, are they uniformly against the war? I mean, theoretically, the war's over. No. Well, in the two arts organizations I work for, we don't have a specific political agenda. We provide tools for veterans and service members to tell their stories, but we don't tell them 
how to tell their stories. We help them through the process of storytelling, but it's that's as far as we go. Often, we'll see veterans and service members being critical of the military, but sometimes you also get memorial pieces. You get pieces that focus on camaraderie and friendship, but those two arts organizations are not inherently anti-war. Now, Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace are very much anti-war. So my thought was that there could very easily be veterans that you have regular contact with who were very critical of the idea of going out to Standing Rock. Did that happen? I personally have not been criticized by any veterans in my circle for going to Standing Rock, and I have hundreds of veterans in my circle. People have been generally supportive. Veterans specifically have been generally supportive of the effort. Now, certainly there are veterans groups who were critical of the campaign. The Veterans of Foreign Wars, for example, made a public statement before the campaign happened. I think that specific group was in North Dakota. They urged veterans not to go and participate in what they saw as an illegal activity. But ultimately, we see how that went. (laughs) How long were you out there in North Dakota with the camp, Standing Rock? I was on the ground for four days. I had about a week to dedicate to going out there, and travel time was a day on both sides. So four days that I was there on the ground, I was at the Machete Sokoan camp, which is the main camp. But at one point, we had to go to the casino that was a few miles away because the weather conditions got so bad that we were trying to do what was essentially an evacuation of the camp for anyone who wasn't prepared for extreme weather conditions. Some people were saying the wind chill factor was negative 40. And does it get that cold in Ithaca, New York area, or is this a new experience for you? (laughs) I've never seen it that cold. That's definitely the coldest conditions that I've ever been in. Because I'm in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, you know, halfway up Wisconsin, we do see some cold temperatures. I don't know what the thermometer was down to. And I would say, by the way, I got off easy because at the time that you were going over to Standing Rock, I was in Kenya, and you can imagine how horribly cold it didn't get there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Actually, on the way back, the night before I got back, my wife said it was minus 17 degrees here. That's not wind chill, that's temperature. Minus 17 degrees here in Eau Claire. And by the time I arrived home, which was in the afternoon of that day, it was up over 20 So she attributes, maybe I should have gone to Standing Rock at that time and taken some of the extra heat with me, huh? (laughs) So what do you feel like the work that you did and that, in general, veterans did at Standing Rock, what do you think that work was? What did you accomplish? So most directly, we saw the easement for the pipeline get denied. So that was definitely a victory, if temporary. And everybody there knew that it was a temporary victory. That was one thing that was accomplished, and that was a a lift to spirits for sure. And then also the community building that's happening there is hugely significant, I think, because to give some historical context for what this means for veterans in terms of a mass movement mobilizing for a social justice cause, which I don't think has ever happened to that level in the United States. Now, we've had Uh, For example, the Bonus Army in 1932, where 20,000-plus veterans and their families went to Washington to demand bonuses that were promised to them for fighting in World War I, but that was 
not a social justice cause necessarily, where veterans were standing up for another community and their rights. This was more veterans advocacy. Of course, you know, we can look at Vietnam veterans against the war. started in the late 60s. They had a 25,000-plus veteran-strong membership at one point. It's not that today, but they're still active. Of course, Iraq Veterans Against the War, as we talked about, started in 2004, still going strong, but we've never seen 4,000 veterans show up for a social justice cause like we did at Standing Rock. So that is significant, and that is going to be something that going forward is going to motivate a lot more veterans and service members to get involved in social justice issues. And I think all of the branch-off organizations that we're seeing, and there are many, I can't even follow them now, that's going to be another huge resource and, and asset in the, the fight going forward under Donald Trump. Yeah, it's my perspective. I don't know if it's valid, but it's my perspective that the resistance to even World War II and to the Korean War created this immense number of people who were very clear about working together and putting their lives on the line for a cause. And so the civil rights movement and other, the anti-nuclear movement, all of those things were, I think, fueled in part by vets. And I don't know that those numbers have been calculated exactly that way, but I guess I've known so many. But, you know, I'm hanging around in Quaker circles where you're more likely to see those folks. But I think that, in fact, war has so often led to good social change, and maybe that's what's going to come out of the Iraq War and the veterans who stand up at Standing Rock. Yeah, that's something that, that I think often about, that the Iraq War, which was a low point in my life, participating in what I see as an illegal war. Out of that, I've gained a community of, of veterans and, and civilians and friends and activists that is very strong, and it's helped me stand up for what I believe in. It's given me a voice. Before the Army, there's no way that I would... I can't say there's no way, but you know, it, it would have taken me a lot to get out in the streets and protest to the same extent that I am now. Of course, I said that, you know... I was involved in, in protesting a garbage dump when I was a teenager, but, I mean, now it's it's basically become a full-time pursuit for me. Well, there's one other part of your full-time life that I'd like you to mention because we are going to have you back again. There is a website, kevinbasil.com, and basil is spelled B-A-S-L. Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, basil.com. You're going to find links to the groups that Kevin works with their Iraq veterans against the war, veterans for peace, all of those links you'll find on that site. And I'll have a link, of course, to Kevin from org. But there's also your music. I want you to say a few words about that. So I started playing music when I was a child in, in church. I played handbells. And then later I got involved in marching band and jazz band when I was in high school. And then I was in a rock band with friends through high school and into college before I joined the Army. So I had this musical background before I went into the Army. That got stifled as soon as I went through basic training and advanced individual training, and then I got stationed in Fort Stewart. I didn't have a guitar with me during any of that time. I felt like something was missing. So I went and started to buy musical equipment again, and I deployed to Iraq in 2005. I took a guitar with me. Didn't get to play it as much as I wanted to, but, you know, it was something to do in the off time that I had. 
2007, I started to get more serious about my music again. I found myself in a situation in Iraq, the Camp Taji, where I had a lot of downtime because my job was getting privatized. My job as a radar operator, and we were more often training civilian contractors who were coming in to do our job. So I had a lot of downtime. So I set up a studio, a recording studio in a storage closet at Camp Taji, and I recorded an album. Now, there's more to that story than that. The album would sit in a closet for almost eight years in Philadelphia, where I went to school after the Army. I finished the album in 2015 after getting involved in the veterans community. The artists and the activists who I'm now friends with, they encouraged me to finish the music and, and release it. So now I'm working on an EP of old GI resistance music from as far back as World War One to the present. So it'll have about six songs from the GI resistance movement over the, the past century. And we're going to have Kevin Basil back for our Song of the Soul program pretty soon. So just keep looking for that, and we'll be sharing some of that music. And, Kevin, I'm so inspired. You know, take your roots at your youth in western Pennsylvania. You go to the military, I think, out of idealism, out of wanting to make a positive change in the world. And we're going to hear something about what that meant in terms of your deep motivations, your faith, your outlook on the world. We're going to talk about that in Song of the Soul. But then bring it back to full-time service to making this a better world. I so appreciate that, and I appreciate that music came out of it as well. And So we're going to hear that soon. So thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for joining us today for Spirit in Action. That was Kevin Basil. K-E-V-I-N-B-A-S-L.com is the site where you can find him. You can look forward to hearing more from him very soon on Northern Spirit Radio. Big thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice